Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Welcome to Bite Into It this Wednesday, the 4th of November, 2020. Tonight we have Dan Morganti behind the desk. Dan, how's technology been treating you this week? Uh, yeah, not too bad. I got back into League of Legends, which um, is possibly the worst decision I've ever made. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. And we've also got Maze Wallen co-hosting. How's technology been treating you this week? Good, mate. Um, just reminiscing with Dan about the, the different <laughs> MMOs that we've, that we've picked up and, and the different um, video games that we're, that we're regretting reinstalling. Um, uh, yep. <laughs> love it. The pandemic's got a lot to answer for on that front, I think. <laughs> um, and I'm Ro Murray. Um, so this week on Bite Into It, Australia's university sector has obviously experienced huge changes in 2020 and our producer and host Vanessa has been working for weeks to line up this episode of Bite Into It, really taking a close look at tertiary education as it intersects with technology in you know, one of the weirdest years we've ever lived through. So tonight, we'll be speaking with Monash's Deputy Dean of Education, Dr Matthew Butler, and Dr Emily Van Der Nagel, a lecturer at Monash Uni, about some of the challenges of remote teaching and learning, the current weaknesses with the remote and virtual proctoring, what good solution design looks like, and also what pitfalls we're seeing now in the tertiary sector. Next, we'll throw to some news. Maze, Twitter's been getting entertaining, hasn't it? Yes, well, of course, we can't talk about the news without talking about the very, very big news, which is the US election, which I'm sure we're all really trying to um, uh, not give in to the magnetic pull that Twitter has. But I'll update you anyway, so that you don't have to look yourself. Um, Twitter has been starting to cover up some um, of the, the US election tweets coming from different officials. So whether that's Trump himself or whether um, different campaign officials who have been working under him, um, they're covering them up under disputed or might be misleading about an election or other civic process. Um, and, you know, some of these are pictures uh, where people say that, here is here is some fake ballots and things like that. Um, some of it is, you know, Trump saying that uh, he's won and or telling um, the world that other people are putting fake ballots in. Um, so I guess things that could be defamation almost. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, and you know they're they're trying their best and they've got um, on on every tweet that they cover up, they've got a link about uh, Twitter's 2020 security or US election security efforts um, to have a bit of a transparency there over what they are and are not covering. Um, but, yeah, it, there's a huge effort going on and it's it's midnight in Washington and they're all still going. So we've got a lot to look out for and, and that, that story is just going to get huger and huger until Friday. 
Absolutely. Well, another really interesting thing that um, has been, you know, it's become a bit of a hallmark of this US election season is that um, deep fakes, um, in particular, like, you know, AI photos, but mostly around deep fake videos, have genuinely become quite mainstream over the course of this election season. Um, one really interesting story um, was a AI-generated photo and fake names standing in for actual conspiracy theory authors um, and deep fake videos that are peddling fake Hunter Biden dossiers. So there was actually a 64-page document that was disseminated by close associates of President Trump. And um, it was found that it was actually the work of a fully fake intelligence firm, a fully fake document, and the supporting videos and photos were also fully fake. Um, so we're having to spend um, more time unpacking rather than just absorbing the news. And as the deep fake technology gets better and better, it's um, one of those things that's going to become harder and harder to, to manage and harder and harder to spot. Absolutely. Absolutely doozy. And it's, it seems yeah. like... Um... Like uh, the the they're coming from uh, spurious sources as well, like uh, from Russia and China and other uh, um, countries that we're we're having these kind of internet wars with. You know, it's it's really um it's a scary time for this kind of thing, especially when oh, someone can make so. it look like you're saying something that you're not. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. And Dan, you've been looking at some uh, political donations. Yeah, so to keep up with uh, the, the theme of the US election, um, we've been looking up the political donations of uh, C CEOs of video games companies. Um, and I must say that it's surprising how many actually uh, uh, donate to Democrats as opposed to Republicans. I thought, uh, to me, anyone who's a CEO is the most likely going to be conservative, but, uh, yeah, most of them, are uh, donating to democratic, uh, nominees and the democratic party, Gabe Newell, for example, the valve CEO, uh, he has donated, uh, made three donations exclusively to, uh, democratic candidates. Um, but there are a few notable, notable examples of, um, people who have, uh, CEOs who have donated to, Republicans uh, and Bobby Kotick, the CEO slash uh, uh, internet punching bag, is um, <laughs> also uh, donating to Republican candidates, uh, specifically to um, candidates and also to the party. And he's also donated a certain amount of money to the Jobs Opportunity and New Ideas PAC, which is a Republican, I think it's a think tank. It's... Uh, it's I'm visiting the website. It's the Center for Repu for Responsible Responsive Politics, and it's uh, talking about uh, donations to the PAC. Or yeah, uh, so there are uh, more CEOs do do donating to Democrats, and there are Republicans, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah you know, t some of them like Bobby Kotick. I found I was just like, yeah, of course, yeah. of course, a hundred percent, and. Palmer Lucky, which I was saying earlier, but then looking at people like Mark Merrill from Riot, um, mm. it's interesting how it almost sort of reflects Riot's politics themselves. <laughs> a bit okay. moderate, a bit both sidesy, trying to play the game. Yeah. Um, and I almost wonder if, like, he he knew that <laughs> these donations would go out and be public and, like, he's already preparing, you know. <laughs> that is some foresight by him then. 
But oh, yeah, like we was, we spoke about Bobby Kotick. You could talk about that guy for oh, days and days about his terrible politics and terrible uh, working conditions for staff and, and other such matters. Yeah. yeah. That's definitely. And um, Maze, we were talking about the rise of paper. Yeah, I mean, it's been an interesting time where, you know, tech workers, it's like that XKCD comic, which I feel like I could say about any tech in joke, um, <laughs> where we just don't trust tech. Um, it's not secure, it's faulty, um, it will probably break. And, you know, even during a pandemic, um, we could not uh, look towards digital voting. We've still gone with the snail mail. Um, and I think that, you know, most people can agree <laughs> um, that 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 hard copy is more secure, but maybe not at this point where it's also more easily discounted maybe or accidentally lost. Mm. Or maybe it's not easier because it is just so easy to lose stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I think it just Technology becomes too. Yeah, yeah, I think it just becomes a matter of splitting hairs like the pros and cons is uh you know paper can be lost or burnt or um or you know damaged or you know maybe intentionally misplaced uh but you mm. know um digital files can be corrupted or hacked or it's just uh you know what which way do you want to go which way do you feel like you have the best uh, chance of protection and the like. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting also during COVID where, um, you know, we've looked at the Victorian and New South Wales different ways that they track and keep track of um, of people who have contracted the virus. And, you know, we're starting to actually hear the different CRMs that people are using, like Salesforce and things like that, and journos actually asking about the way that people put data into their CRMs as knowledgeable or not as those questions might be. Um, and, yeah, just what is what is easier to use for people who are newly adopting and what is more transparent and what is more stable, I suppose. Mm. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. So we are very excited to welcome Dr Matt Butler, who's the Monash Deputy Dean of Education and a Senior Lecturer and Researcher. Matt is a researcher in Sensi Lab working in accessibility, a senior lecturer within the Faculty of Information Technology, where he's head of the games development major within the Bachelor of Infotech. And he also teaches game design and development and C programming. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you very much for having me on. So, um, just to get things started, obviously 2020 has been a year of incredible change in the tertiary sector and um, we were really interested in having a chat to you tonight about, um, you know, some of the good and bad ways that technologies, you know, come, come to play into the piece and I'd love to hear, you know, what's the first technological cab off the rank that's made this year great for you? 
Yeah, so look, it's, a, it's an interesting question. So I teach in the Faculty of Information Technology and probably pretty fortunate that we'd already started to work with some of the technologies that we kind of had to embrace quite strongly this year. So, for example, um, we've had virtual software platforms for a little while now, which meant that we hadn't had to rely on kind of physical computer labs. We could start to get um, a bit more easier access for students to get access to software. Uh, we Monash has some campuses overseas, so we'd already been starting to do student projects with virtual teams across Australia and Malaysia, for example. So um, we were actually pretty well placed, and it just meant that obviously when it all kind of hit the fan, um, in Feb and March, we kind of just had to kind of go all in on some of those things we'd already started. Yeah, absolutely. I thought um, one of the things that you obviously focus on is um, product solutions and accessibility. And um, I was really interested to hear whether you think that um, all of the enforced changes that have come around this year have been a good or a bad thing for accessibility in the big picture. Yeah, look, that's a really good question. And it's been interesting because we've had to really rapidly kind of pivot to using some of these technologies. And then I think it's over the course of the year, we've actually been kind of had to stop and reflect on saying, actually, are these the best technologies to use? And uh, is this the way we want to keep going? So um, for example, I, I do some research with um, folks who are blind or have low vision. And so even finding what um, kind of, uh, so things like Zoom and things like Microsoft Teams, like which ones do you go with that is um, more accessible for kind of the end users, both um, you know if they've got particular challenges or even just in terms of the experience of the the education. And you know, surely also there must be some real obvious positives that have come out of it now that we don't have to deal with a lot of the physical constraints of of a maybe an aging camp campus or something like that. Um, or, you know, people travelling and things like that. Have there been any highlights around those sorts of things now that people can be at home? Yeah, so, look, I think lectures is always one that pops up, right, is is you kind of say, is that old format of the kind of the wise old stage, you know, in kind of quotes up, up the front, kind of just kind of one-way communication for two hours and... Um, I think that kind of mode of delivery has kind of been dying a bit of a death over the last um, few years anyway. And so I think what something like this does is accelerate that a little bit in terms of it gets us to reflect on if if we're talking about something that's a lecture, well, you might be able to deliver that over something like Zoom or, or through some kind of other seminar technologies. And then what's actually been really positive is that a lot of the Q&A seminar type things that are built into to tools like Zoom translate really well to those kind of uh, lecture type environments, which actually can be a bit more challenging if you've got a room full of 200 people. Um, mm. If you're doing, say, a, a seminar, virtual seminar, and you've got a tutor or something that's helped moderate the Q&A, you can actually then get some really good dialogues that happen like that. Uh, moderated Q&A sounds great rather than the huge rush that you might get on something like Twitch. Um, yes. I wonder... Uh, some of the things that have been making it to social media like TikTok and Twitter have been these videos of students who are just um, in tears when an AI is like tracking their eye movements, whether they're paying attention, um, or even it seems like schools are, are um, 
adopting more quickly those AI marking tools as well with all of the rest of this tech. Have you had much experience with those sorts of things where it's gone like oh so wrong? Mm. Oh, so, I mean, we're certainly using some tools to support uh, our education programs. I mean, one obvious one is around academic integrity. And so obviously there's a lot of coding and that kind of stuff that happens in our faculty. And so we've got some tools. I wouldn't probably go as far to call them AI, but certainly... Um, machine learning kind of supported tools that will look to see similarity between assignment submissions and those kinds of things. Now, um, there always has to be a human in the loop. You know, they're not a blunt instrument and you, you do need to then reflect on the results that they give and, and use that as one piece of the puzzle um, to explore that. I mean, another part is obviously um, remote invigilation of things like exams mm. and Look, that's a that's a really tough one. And even as an educator, I'm quite conflicted around, around that. Um, so on one hand, we have to be mindful of academic integrity and say that, okay, well, we need to ensure that, um, that the, the students who are undertaking the exam are doing it in a, in a way that's, um, that has integrity for what the university expects. But then I think we also have to be respectful of the privacy and the extra pressure that that puts a student under, right, is um, it's one thing to be, I think, in an exam hall with a a paper-based exam, but then it's another thing to have be on your computer doing an exam and kind of thinking, seeing the little green light next to your webcam kind of always monitoring you. I think that puts different pressures on the students. So um, certainly at Monash, we have used an external provider for remote proctoring and things like that in the past, but um, one of the things that the university did very quickly this year is to say, well, that's probably not acceptable actually because there's a privacy issues are those platforms designed with the best interests of students in mind? So Monash has been developing its own over the course of this year to try and find that balance between trying to maintain academic integrity but respect the privacy, you know, respect as much as possible the privacy of the students. Totally. And, um, you know, take, take this on to a really interesting point. Obviously, um, universities have had to pivot very unexpectedly and very quickly and very hard this year. Um, but now that you've sort of lived and breathed it for probably six, six or a bit months now, what do you think some of the current product gaps are or potentially even product opportunities to make it a better all-round experience? Yeah, so the interesting thing kind of reflecting, part of my job, I guess, as Deputy Dean of Education in our faculty is actually to reflect on this year and say, okay, if we have the capacity to get back onto campus next year, what should that on-campus experience be like? Um, and to kind of reflect on some of the things that we did this year and say, well, hey, actually, that might be a better learning experience. Um, and so what, which ones of those do we keep running with? And then which ones do we kind of say, well, actually, if we're getting students back on campus, what are the meaningful activities that we should do on campus? You know, again, if we use lectures as the example, it may actually not be in the best interest for us to return to a two-hour basic lecture like that. But if we might maybe be able to do more authentic activities, more authentic assessment and things like that, um, that would be part of it. I think one of the gaps we're still trying to, to fill is around uh, how, how you get those deep levels of engagement in your students. So it's one thing to have the students in your class and you can really get to know them. You can start to identify the students at risk and those kinds of things. I think when you're talking about students at the other end of a webcam or purely by their interaction on our learning management system, I think what we need to do for me is actually do we have better ways to really 
make sure our students are engaged, we can support them, we can know how they're going uh, and those kinds of things. We're learning, we're using learning analytics a bit for that, but I think that's something, an area that we could certainly keep working on. Well, yeah, speaking of the students, what, what do they have to say about all this uh, new technology and uh, the, way, the new way things are being done? Yeah, I, th I think the experience differs a little bit depending on what faculty the students are in. Um, so, look, as I said, I'm, I'm fairly fortunate that in a faculty of information technology, a lot of the systems or software or, or those kinds of things that we had to pivot to were actually not unfamiliar to those students. So, again, the virtual software platforms, virtual teams, electronic assessment, live streaming of things had kind of started to become quite common for our students. So I don't think there was as much of a learning kind of curve for them. Um, look, and they've embraced it in different kind of to different degrees. I think some, uh, like I think Maisie said earlier, I think some don't mind the fact that they can sleep in until one minute before their lecture or they can they can be part of their tutorial while they're in their pyjamas. Um, I've, I've had some of our academics tell me all kinds of um crazy stories about when students' webcams kind of accidentally were on. Um, so I think this, plenty of the students are liking that flexibility, but I think many are also, they do like that face-to-face uh, -face component. They like to know their tutors a bit more, you know, in that face-to-face, -face and, and so they also feed off on that, which I think is, is probably suffering a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Um, what have been some of the surprises for you? Oh, um, surprises. That's an interesting one. I, look, to be honest, um, I, I kind of quite worry a bit quite about the students, right? So, I mean, you, you worry about how well they're transitioning. So part of my job is to look, at, look after the academics and make sure they can transition to this kind of thing okay. But um, the other thing is the students. And, you know, in our faculty, we've got, six odd thousand students and you start to worry about how are they transitioning particularly because they're spread all across the globe most of them are in in melbourne or australia but all across the globe and i the resilience of our students is is incredible um they've actually been really supportive they're they're critical when they need to be critical but um which is completely fair right but i'm really proud of the students in our faculty in the way that they've they've adapted as well and that they've actually recognised kind of what we're trying to do. Um, uh, one thing for me that I was really proud of in our faculty is we have a you know, student evaluation um, kind of questionnaires that happen. We all prepared for our scores to go down after first semester, given kind of all of the turmoil, but they went up, um, which I was not wow. I was not ready for. And it was a, a really pleasant surprise. And I think it speaks volumes for what our academics did, what our university did to try and support the students, but also the students really being quite resilient and being supportive of what we were trying to do. So that was a really pleasant surprise for me. Yeah, that's super exciting too. Because um, I, I can imagine that maintaining the level of engagement, but also maintaining um, a quality of like the student results and the actual learning, which is really what they're all, what they're there to do in the first place is to really, you know, understand and learn and then have a successful, you know, examination or assignment experience that maintains the integrity of the, the course and, um, you know, the, the thing that they're doing. I, I, I would imagine that um, the overall uh, engagement piece and any, you know, metrics and learns from this year will, will end up being really key in terms of, you know, perhaps 
future blended models and things like that. Do you think that um, universities are ready to grab the analysis from this very strange year and um, hopefully design more flexible solutions moving forward? We have to be ready. I think, I think that's yeah. I think we have to. Uh, so I think for some of the things that we used to do that we we couldn't do this year, there's probably no going back, to be honest. So look, if I use end of semester examinations as one example, used to be thousands of students in an exam hall, many, many millions of sheets of paper and those kinds of things. And this we'd already been working for um, kind of electronic assessment platforms, but we had to go all in this year. And the reality is both from a combination of investing in the technology and a solution to that, um, also recognising that you can deliver exams without needing massive physical spaces, without needing millions of sheets of paper. Um, that's kind of something that I just don't think we can go back to. I think we have to kind of keep blazing down that path and take what we've done this year, learn from it, and then try to improve that and uh, yeah, improve the kind of ex student experience as a, as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. Um, putting your product design hat on, um, would you, you know, like to see universities almost um, take 2020 as its own product design challenge and perhaps set up some projects around it to really you know, dive into the analytics, look at potentially building different tools. Like, and yeah, as a product solutions expert, what would you just love to see Blue Sky universities to do next? So I think one of the things that we uh, are wrestling with a little bit, I think, is that we have all these disparate systems, mm -hmm. right? So we have a dedicated learning management system, which is Moodle. We, we obviously have extensive use of things like Zoom, of Microsoft Teams, of, of our virtual software environments, but they all don't really talk to each other particularly. And so when it comes to trying to build up a, a, a fully realised picture of how is the student going, what's their engagement like, it takes a heck of a lot of work to try and put all of that stuff together. Mm. And so for me, to be able to grab the data from those systems and then kind of start to interrogate it and understand our students better and so that we can look to support them in more meaningful ways, I think for me is, is what's really important moving forward. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's it's definitely going to be, um, I think there's no getting around it, that um, obviously this year has been an immense challenge and, and next year, because there are still so many unknowns, we don't know if we're going to have um, further spikes. We don't know whether international travel is going to continue to be a thing. There are so many unknowns. So um, I guess, do you have any hot predictions at this stage, what even just the next few months or the next year for students and researchers and lecturers like yourself is going to look like? I think it'll be a continuation of what the second half of the year has been like. I think mm -hmm. it'll be a mix of trying to offer online delivery of our units and then as students are able to come back onto campus, working out how we can maintain those two cohorts. Because we, as you say, we've got a lot of international students who are still not going to be able to get back probably in a hurry. So how do we support them in meaningful ways in those online blended ways? How do we start to weave in the on-campus experience, I think? So it's going to be a fair continuation of this and we just have to be, be ready to pivot. Mm -hmm. We have all, uh, all year, I think. Yeah, well, it sounds like, um, you know, everyone has been doing an uh, uh, incredible job so far this year, and I've got no doubt that um, everyone's up for the challenge. So 
Um, congratulations on getting through this year. Um, and thank you so much for joining us on the show tonight. It's been fantastic to have you here. Oh, look, that's my pleasure. And look, thank you. Thank you for the support. It's really fantastic. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Our guest is Dr. Emily Vandenagel, who is a lecturer in social media at Monash Uni here in Melbourne. Her research um, includes social media identities, social media cultures. Um, anonymity, intimacy, memories and algorithms and we had her on the show not that long ago to talk about her first book, Sex and Social Media, which was co-authored with um, Katrin Tiedenberg, which is an academically informed, critical but accessible discussion on sex and sexuality on and with social media. Welcome back to the show, Emily. Hi, Ro. Thanks so much for having me. It's lovely to be here. Yes, so much fun. So um, this show, we've really been um, enjoying unpacking, you know, the 2020 that has been so far in um, the university space. And it's obviously been a monumental challenge, but we were really keen um, to have a chat with you about, um, obviously, you've been... um, you know, lecturing and convening to undergrad media comms units and you've just been at the absolute coal face. So can you tell us a bit what this year's been like for you so far? It's been a real surprise, that's for sure. I began my lecturing appointment at Monash at the beginning of 2019, so um, the contrast to my second year of working as a lecturer has been completely different. It's like I, I I just learned how it all worked and all of a sudden, you know, it was all turned upside down. So this year I've convened um, two units uh, totally online and flipping all of the plans that I had for both semesters um, has been a real challenge. But, you know, like Matt's suggesting, some parts of our teaching really do need to be rethought. Yeah. And, and, you know, I I guess when we're in a position to grab hold of that opportunity and run with it, you know, it can be a really good outcome. But um, I was curious to hear about, I mean, obviously these pivots have had to happen very quickly. What was the first few weeks like for you when everything suddenly changed? A lot of crisis meetings at first, (laughs) Um, a lot of emergency meetings where we all got in a room together and looked at each other, you know, glancing left and right and thinking, what are we going to do now? Um, But look, actually, at at Monash, one of the great things that they have for us is um, is a a team of um, education designers and nobody was working harder than them in first semester. They were, um, you know, giving people advice and, and helping them through learning management systems and with tech stuff and with what is possible and and achievable during that kind of online space. Um, Certainly the success of my first semester was due in large part to the professional staff that we had at Monash. Um, But second semester, they've, um, you know, they've stopped handholding. They've let us, they've let us go for it. Uh, And I've learned a lot from my first semester of online teaching that I've carried into second semester now. And I'm much more confident um, with the unit I'm teaching. Yeah, what are some of the main things that have changed? Um, I I remember some of the guidance I've gotten in the past. It's like, you know, try and only speak for 50% of the time and try and get the students to engage. But how has the engagement 
changed and, and what are some of the weird things that have shifted? The thing to know with teaching any undergrad cohort is that um, no no matter, you know, I mean, my, my first unit this semester, uh, sorry, this year had... Um, had about 350 students my second unit has had about closer to 200 so with any cohort where you're talking about a couple of hundred students you're always going to get a range of skills and interests and enthusiasm levels for the course there are always going to be some students who are really keen you know who who do a lot of work who contribute a lot and are very enthusiastic and then you've got students who are, who are much less so um, for various reasons you know students are people they are juggling all kinds of complicated things in their lives and never more than this year when when some of our students for example have you know mo moved countries or had huge challenges keeping their casual work or um, you know, the, the list goes on. It's been a really challenging year for a lot of people. So, um, so you know, how does how has that changed? Well, Matt was talking about lectures. Um, and look, don't want to toot my own horn, but I'm a pretty good lecturer. <laughs> and I never found that many students were willing to turn up in person to a lecture hall and listen to me go on for 50 minutes in a row. So, um, you know, for, for me, producing bite-sized portions, you know, t 10 minutes or under um, to talk through some key concepts and introduce students to the, the theme of the week was a big pivot for me. But I think it's really helped because it's more digestible. Um, it's more accessible. I, I put a lot of information on my slides. Students can follow along really well. So, you know, there's there's definitely so what, been... So what does that mean? Instead of the 50-minute lecture now, you've got like five... 10 minute videos and and then how are they spread is it is very much still real time or do you know you know uh so so instead of having one 50 minute lecture so it's an hour slot you know you you get on campus or in the lecture hall you've got uh lots and lots of seats and not very many students in the in the actual building with you and you talk at them for 50 minutes in a row um with some slides instead of that what i'm doing now is recording most of the time I record two 10-minute videos. It sounds like students are getting less of a lecture, but what I've actually had to do is go through a real process of condensing a lot of information into, um, you know, a, a much shorter format. So what I, I don't have those um, at any set time. I record those. Students can access them whenever they like and hopefully um, giving them plenty of information on the accompanying slides means that they can follow along or even replace the video with the slides if they're having a lot of, you know, connectivity or access issues. So I remember when I was at uni that uh, Blackboard was the the way that teachers uh, or lecturers, tutors communicated and it was often a little bit clunky. Uh, seeing as you're teaching social media units, uh, students coming up with their own ways to communicate and connect uh, for their own learning? They, I mean, I never know what they do when they connect with each other. So look, maybe they have Facebook groups, maybe they have Weibo chat groups. Um, I don't know. But for me, 
um, black, Blackboard, as you've mentioned, is one example of what we call a learning management system. At Monash, that's called Moodle. We also <laughs> have, and, I, and I've used this semester, an attached platform called ePortfolio. So I asked students to, in, in my unit on social media writing, to um, research a, a, a particular social media subject, whether it was, you know, an influencer, a troll, a journalist, someone political, um, and then write social media posts from that person. So they were putting them on this e-portfolio format. It lets them include a lot of multimedia elements. That Wait, was... So they are generating the views themselves. So they're so so <laughs> yeah. So like as a creative writing project, students are coming up with um with social media posts from a particular subject, uh, and and you know it let them be really creative with the format. It wasn't just an essay they were submitting in Word document format. You know, some students were linking TikToks and saying, here's my TikTok response video. Some students were filming themselves making a dramatic apology as an influencer. There were all kinds of ways that um, students were taking that on. Such an awesome evolution and um, sort of off, off the back of being I guess, essentially forced to do this so rapidly um, this year, um, you know, looking forward to more of a blended approach when things simmer down a little bit and life goes back to whatever that new normal might be. What are some of the really cool things that you're excited about continuing to fold into that learning experience for your students? Look, I think... It's, you know, no matter what you do, there are always going to be some students that just don't like uni. There's no getting around it for, for you know, as I say, for a big group, there are some students that um, no matter what you put in front of them will grab it and run with it and do something really exciting. And for other students, it's a matter of, um, you know, surviving the experience as best they can. So there's, there's no getting around that. But for me, especially with doing things like, you know, short lecture videos and Zoom tutorials, it's I really like some aspects, not all aspects of the Zoom tutorial, but some parts of it I think can actually be be really inclusive for for example just the simple fact that everybody is basically walking into a room with a name tag on that's really good for me I have five tutorials a week it's hard for me to learn hundreds of names in a semester when I see these students for you know two hours a week um it's great to have everybody you know with their little names in the box on zoom um I can kick off whole conversations by putting up a little poll you know, I can say things like, uh, how was last semester for you? Was it great? Was it okay? Or was it terrible? And once they've put in their response in the survey, you know, in my little poll, I can say, okay, you know, who wants to expand on that? Um, then they feel more connected to the class and they feel like they've already kind of put a toe in the in the water so they're more happy to to participate. And students can type in the chat box. It, it's, it's really interesting for me how Zoom actually opens up a lot of different ways for students to participate. Um, you know, some, some of them will chat with you with their camera on, with their microphone on. Some of them are more shy. <laughs> some of them have reasons why they, they, they can't use those features, but they'll type instead or they'll, they'll link you to things instead. Um, and there's, there's a lot of potential in those different modes of engagement. Yeah, I was quite interested in actually... Um, you know, hearing more about um, you know what the what the tech has been telling you um, and what you what you've been learning, um, and I think some of these polls and things like that is a really great indicator. And I think um, the accessibility is another really great indicator for the people that aren't 
confident speaking, but happy to load things into the chat. Um, what are some of the other things you weren't expecting um, that have come out of the woodwork? That's a good question. Um, I, I'm not sure that I that I was expecting actually, you know, students to to be so willing to turn up every week. <laughs> Maybe that sounds a little pessimistic. No, that's but, awesome. But, but look, Zoom's not for everyone. We all have our own experiences with, Zoom, with you know, whatever video chat technology that we've used this year. Um, it's pervaded our work life and our social life and um, and sometimes our dating life, for example. It's it, it can be so easy to get sick of Zoom. And attendance this semester is actually pretty good. I, I have about two-thirds of, of my class rock up every week, um, you know, across my, my five tutorials that I take. And it's even when students are, yeah, camera off, microphone off, but still there, still willing to participate, um, they, they still want to talk to their peers in breakout rooms, for example. I just find that really heartening. Um, it's so easy to skip those classes. We don't have an attendance policy this semester simply mm. because of those access and yeah. equity issues. What I've done instead is set a, a, a small assignment where students tell me how they participated. It's a reflective piece. I just say, look, you know, <laughs> convince me that you've done a good job of uh, contributing to the unit and, and do that in your own words. And, um, you know, that, that assignment's coming up, but... I already know that plenty of students have done their absolute best to take a global crisis and still get a lot out of it. I'm really heartened by that. It's really, really awesome to hear. Do you think, um, do you think it's sustainable? Do you think students will run out of puff or do you think they've adapted pretty well? Well, there are at least students who, you know, who I've seen across both semesters who, yeah, some, some students are finding it really difficult. You know, there are, there are all kinds of challenges, as I say, with um, some students have moved internationally or, um, or yeah, have, have lost job opportunities and income and family support and it's been really tough. And, look, we know mm. that the Australian government has not supported international students, especially in, in the, the best ways that they could have. Um, but yeah, challenges aside, I've learned a lot about teaching this year um, and a lot about different ways to communicate exactly how I want students to come into the unit and what I want them to get out of it. And that's been a very, it's a steep learning curve for me, but a really important one. Yeah, I wonder, um, you know, do, have you felt like you've still gotten to know the students very well, um, you know, as well as you might if people could casually come to you after class or if you saw people in person? Um, or do you feel like, you know, maybe you're, you're missing some students or, you know, really have no idea who some people are? Yeah, that's how that's you, a really, yeah, gone with yeah, that. that. That's a good question, and I think that speaks to, you know, um, just how much can you get out of, of a large cohort that, that you know, as I say, this is the structure of the undergrad university experience. I see these students in groups of 25 for one or two hours a week max. Um, so 
with all of the cohorts, you know, the the most engaged students, the ones that speak up, the ones that have their camera on, I feel like I've gotten to know some of them really well. Um, but just like in other semesters, there's a range of ways that students want to interact with you. Some of them really want to get a lot out of it and they bring a lot as well. But others, um, yeah, as I say, you know, uni is challenging, a struggle, a bit of a chore, um, mm. and they want to do you know, they want to dip in at their own pace and be pretty reserved. And look, we're all different. <laughs> some of us like uni, some of us hate it. That's okay. Is there, I'm, is there I'm much of a difference between um, the students who have just come in first year straight from high school and have no preconceived notions about experiencing university compared to the ones who have already had one or two years of being in person and then, you know, have gotten this uh, sort of shift halfway through their degree or something like that. Mm. I tell you what, I would love to know more about that. I, I mostly teach second year undergrads, but next year I'm going to be teaching a cohort of first years um, for the first time in a while. So their experience coming out of 2020 and into 2021, who knows what what uni will look like next year. Um, it'll be fascinating to see the difference between students who have adapted and, and have done that same pivot that their teachers have done versus students who have never set foot on campus. What does university mean to them? It's going to be a very, very interesting one to watch for sure. So, Emily, thank you so much for coming on the show um, and, and sharing what, you know, this absolute dumpster fire of a year has been like. We always like to look for the bright lights and, you know, how technology um, helps us along with these things. So um, for our listeners at home, we've been chatting to Dr Emily Vandenagel, who um, is one of the local legends from Monash University and a great friend of the show. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Maze, there are some interesting events coming up. Yeah, well, one interesting one is Death Tech, Redesigning Death for the 21st Century and Beyond. That's on Thursday the 5th, so um, tomorrow. <laughs> um, online only, just on Eventbrite. So from human composting and vertical cemeteries to funerary robots and ash scattering, it'll be really interesting to um, see this Death Tech happening uh, during this time. Absolutely. And um, what's hot in IT from Vic ICT from women have gone bite-sized, practical cybersecurity with Bill Rue. So this is on Tuesday, the 10th of November, 12.30 to 1pm, um, tickets by Eventbrite, and that's another all-online one. Um, so thank you so much to our guests this evening, Dr Matthew Butler and Dr Emily Vandenagel. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.